You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Marcus. He's Associate Clinical Professor of OBGYN at Yale University School of Medicine. He also holds a Master's of the History of Medicine from Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Peter Marcus, welcome to the program today. Thank you. So today I'm really interested in talking to you about an area of strong interest for you for which you are devoting a lot of time to teaching other students, and that is the fundamental question of the utility of medical history in modern clinical practice, or just medicine today. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in that idea, that concept. History has always been something that I've always enjoyed. I was a history major as an undergraduate down at Tulane, and as part of the honors program, I had to write a thesis, and at that time I knew that you know I wanted to go into medical school school, obviously. So one of the things that I wrote a paper on was on the history of the New Orleans School of Medicine, which actually was not the predecessor to Tulane University, but it was actually a competitor that existed prior to the Civil War. And its actual sort of unheralded claim to fame was prior to the Hopkins reform, it actually did a lot of innovative educational things at that time. So having a gradated curriculum, getting the students involved in the ward activities of the patients at then Charity Hospital. So I would sit there and say, from my perspective, always enjoyed history and history of medicine and the history of medical education because it really sort of provides you an opportunity, an avenue of looking at where we've been and where we are potentially going. It led you on this path towards actually pursuing a master's in medical history from Johns Hopkins, which I can say, having been in that building, is a fascinating place in and of itself. You feel like you're a part of medical history just in being in there. Tell me a little bit about how you pursued that program. Yale requires a thesis. I did my undergraduate medical training at Yale, and they require a thesis, and don't care how you go about getting it so long as you write your thesis and turn it in at the end of your four years. So between second and third year, I applied and got accepted it to the Hopkins master's program and so went and did my preliminary training down at Hopkins. It's a fabulous experience. My classmates were great. There were folks who had completed their training already. I remember that year that I was there, there was actually a orthopedic surgeon who had been in private practice for many years and decided to take a one-year sabbatical and come down and do history of medicine training there. It was a spectacular opportunity. I'm very thankful that I was able to spend some time there. Well, you talk about history of medical training. I think there's probably a lot of naivete or just plain ignorance when it comes to what that means, to receive training in medical history. What does that entail? Like anything, if you want to become a pseudo-expert or an expert in the area, you'd have to take special classes. If you want to be a history major in college, and you have to sort of say, okay, I want to be an American history major. You need to have so many courses in particular concentration within American history. Well, there's a whole specialty devoted to the history of medicine. Sometimes it's, depending on the department, it's lumped together with the history of medicine and technology, history of medicine, technology, and science. Within the history of medicine, there are definitely survey courses, but then getting into the nitty-gritty of the history of medicine in a particular country during a particular time period. As an example, you could sit there and say, let's talk about the history of medicine in 19th century Germany or the history of medicine in 18th century France. And you can take entire semester courses devoted upon that particular topic and what innovations occurred or things like that within that particular country, that particular time period. And ultimately develop entire careers around some of these time niches, these particular points in history. Oh, yes. And clearly a lot of folks have done that around that particular time post or around particular individuals. Whether you want to look at Pavlov and what was going on with that and the cultural influences that he was dealing with, or do you want to talk about a particular person further 
in history or current history. Let's jump forward a little bit. You then go and pursue an OBGYN clinical career. You maintain strong ties to the medical history training that you received, and you've gone on to help empower medical students and residents and perhaps even other colleagues about the idea that medical history has a place, a continued role in modern clinical practice today, alongside having not only taught, but you've written a number of articles on history of OBGYN in specific areas, which are fascinating and we'll be able to talk about. But tell me a little bit about how you go about creating and sending that message that medical history has a place in modern practice. I think there are a couple ways that you can do that. When I was at Indiana University, for the first couple years as I was just sort of sorting things out, I really didn't follow up much on my history of medicine. When I initially interviewed for the faculty appointment at Indiana, I actually was able to interview with a PhD individual who, although his PhD was primarily in French history, he actually had a advocation for medical history as well. And so for about the next four years, he harped on me to try and create a history of medicine elective. So we actually ended up doing that together. And so as a partnership for the next 12 years, he and I ran a history of medicine elective that was open to the fourth year medical students during the month of February. He wanted it at a different time of year, and I ultimately held my guns and said, no, February would really be the ideal time. And here's why. Because when you look at fourth-year medical students, the first five months or so of their fourth year, they're set on doing their audition interviews at their clinical practices that they're looking at. They're doing their interviews during the interview season. And then once match day occurs, they've more or less checked out. But February is, although it's a short month, it's after they've done all of their interviews. It's before match day, so senioritis hasn't really hit in. And so I used it really as an opportunity to have them take a break for a second and take a deep breath in and let's reflect. You're now about to become a physician and enter into this profession. Let's look at where you fit in, irrespective of whatever specialty that you're going to go into. Let's look at a moment and see where you fit in within this pageant of what we call medicine. Because if you really think of it, medicine has been around for roughly 24, 2500 years now. Just figuring out, okay, how do I fit in with what's gone before me in that sense of what is my career aspirations like, what do I want to accomplish, what are my role models, and then having them to have an opportunity to really dig deep into a particular topic that really is of interest to them. So some of the things that the students have written about are really very interesting, and that's where I would emphasize to folks that the history of medicine doesn't have to be about necessarily great individuals, but the modern revolution in the treatment of peptic ulcer disease was one that a student wrote. It actually was very interesting because it talked about how did we treat peptic ulcer disease. Sure, in our lifetime, we've noticed how we sort of cut it out and with all these ulcers, and now we give them antibiotics, and that's it. So the evolution of the mindset and how someone first came up with the idea and how that idea was initially dismissed, no, that's not the way we do it. Or even finding out the cause of Correct. peptic ulcer disease and the instance of testing oneself to figure that out, <laughs> so, as which I believe in that particular in case, case was well known. History of prions, tiny molecules, huge controversy, or the mm. history of renal transplants, mm. all these sort of topics. The history of medicine is something that's really there that I think can avail us all to figure out where we are part and parcel. So I think that's one aspect of what I wanted to get across with the course. And the other was really more formation training. 
training, for lack of a better word. Trying to have this last opportunity with the medical students and really let them know from a professionalism development, here are your role models. And from the history, here's what folks have done before. Here's what it really does mean to be a physician. It's not just scrubs and ER, but there's something more ennobling than just what Hollywood dresses it up to be. So you're stepping into something that has quite the long, rich history you are now entering a place in. And I think when folks ask what is the relevance of the history of medicine today, I would say in some respects that's where it is. Yes, it's useful if you are a research scientist. You always need to know what folks have done in the past so that you don't reinvent the wheel. If you do reinvent the wheel, then understand what wheels have used before and why were they successful or what you can do to improve it. But I think the other aspect of it is really professionalism and, and formation training to use a sort of religious type of term. Let's not also forget, going back to the timing in which you taught your class, which does sound extraordinarily savvy. Another little perk, I would think, in teaching in February in Indiana is that you have quite a captive audience because they're not going anywhere at that point. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. It is a short month, and so we did have a highly concentrated amount of time with the students, and sometimes I think they probably felt a little overwhelmed, but they were highly captive at that time period. It's nothing but an immersive experience, nothing else. Correct. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Marcus, Associate Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Yale University School of Medicine, and we're talking about the utility of medical history in modern clinical practice. Outside the idea of finding meaning in one's art and practice through knowing the history of the art in areas that people really pursue and explore, in a sense making medicine and the practice of medicine their own. There's also this other nice perk about understanding the history of medicine that you've remarked on, which is reminding people that some of the innovations that are commonplace now have a very steep learning curve behind it that involved a number of steps that may seem intuitive now, but at the time were not discovered and might help people open their minds to the idea that some of our understandings now are only at the beginning of where we could potentially go with certain avenues of exploration. One of the areas that you talked about was the history of C-section, and that's such a wonderful uh, example. If you could talk a little bit about where that came from. From my perspective, the way I usually bring it up, and I know the residents who I've worked with over the years are probably bored out of their gourds when they hear me ask these sort of questions, but at least I have a captive audience with the new medical students that circulate through. I have one of my father who was an OBGYN. I have one of his old textbooks, and you look at the statistics from a university hospital out on the East Coast circa the 1920s, 1930s, where they mentioned that they have a mortality rate of around 50% from their C-sections. And you look at something like that, and now you compare it to today where your mortality rate is unheard of to have 50%. Obviously, it's much less than that, but even your morbidity rate is so low that you now have a situation of C-section on demand. So it's a great opportunity to ask the medical students, you have this compare and contrast. Can you tell me what sort of innovations have occurred over the intervening time period to allow that to happen. And it forces them to think for a second and try and put into context, well, when did some of these innovations occur? The first thing that everyone will pipe up about will be antibiotics. When did you really get antibiotics? When were they first promulgated and mass-produced? People are surprised. Sometimes I'll get it, oh, it was done in the 1970s. 
really? <laughs> and then they'll sit there at the other extreme. Oh, it was done in the late 1800s. Well, no, it wasn't. It's a product of essentially World War II, albeit it was discovered earlier than that, but the mass production was really a sort of side effect of the war effort. Imagine somebody who couldn't stand the fact that his bacterial cultures were being stung by these fungi. <laughs> right. So you have that as an example. When you get anesthesia, it's great to not be able to operate on a patient that's jumping around. And so people are, again, surprised to discover that the thought of anesthesia existing before the Civil War, they're surprised by that. But really, if you even just think of anesthesia in and of itself, prior to the use of anesthesia, most of your surgeries were on limbs, and a surgeon was prized for their speed, for amputations and things like that. But once you get anesthesia, it entirely transforms surgery as we know it to now being a little bit more thoughtful. You can now enter into deep body cavities that you couldn't get into before. That, of course, has its own complications, meaning let's talk about blood transfusions. When did you have to start using blood transfusions? Well, what's required for a blood transfusion? Well, you have to know a blood type. When did we first start to know about blood types? What about aseptic technique? Well, if you think about it, what is the concept of an aseptic technique predicated upon? Well, you need to know the disease theory of medicine that we currently have. When did that come about? Who were the proponents of that? How do you talk about Koch's postules? Oh, yeah, I heard about that in biology. Well, how is that relevant to medicine? All those sort of things and trying to weave it all together makes it a far more, I think, interesting cesarean section than just saying, okay, so... What is this muscle? What is this tissue layer? How does this innervate that? You need to know that stuff, obviously. But I think also knowing how do you get through that process of a C-section. And then you can expand. You know, I've given a talk on the sort of, not necessarily the history of a C-section, but why we do surgeries the way we do and looking at an evidence-based practice of how to do a C-section. But even that requires some sort of historical thought. Why did we do it this way? How did that affect it? How do we change things? What's so wonderful about that is that I think it encapsulates so perfectly just how much utility there is in examining something such as the C-section. used commonplace now, it's elective now, and understanding that the angle or the lens through which you see it from the medical history side really does inform the way that we do it now. I don't think there could be a better example than that. Thanks again for sharing that with us. And I want to thank Dr. Peter Marcus for his time today. He's the Associate Clinical Professor of OBGYN at Yale University School of Medicine. And he's been talking to me about the utility of medical history in modern clinical practice. Again, thanks for your time. Thank you.